You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, as we're in our time together tonight in the Word, let me ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you're not used to this exercise, it's a practice of ours as Christians when we gather to be in the Bible together. You know, the, the mistake that I would make tonight if I was teaching here is if I gave you a bunch of lessons that would come from my experiences that I want to pass on or from my family background and traditions and or from some articles I read online that I thought were really helpful, I'd pass on to you. All of that stuff you can either find yourself or you don't even need. Uh, what I've been charged with, as every pastor of God's people has been charged with, is to bring you God's Word. And I want to do that tonight. And so if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can listen in. If you'd like one, as Raquel said, they're available in the Welcome Center. But I'm reminded tonight of just the power of stories. Stories capture our imagination. Uh, stories remind us of a place um, that we perhaps have never considered or imagined. Uh, admittedly, recently, I have watched not one, not two, I have watched all eight of the Harry Potter movies. Um, why? Because I watched some of them and I couldn't remember the storyline, and so over a period of a couple of weeks, I just binge-watched all the Harry Potter movies, and now I'm familiar with the story this imaginary world in that, uh, in that reenactment. But storytelling is powerful, not only because it captures and, and kind of challenges the imagination, but also because it can teach some stories and some lessons that we need to learn, some things that we might otherwise miss if we weren't sort of stopping and staring at it, really considering what it is that we need to learn. There's one really well-accomplished author and speaker that I enjoy reading, as perhaps some of you do. I enjoy listening to a podcast that he has. Uh, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. A uh, number of books he's written. One book he has written is titled uh, Outliers. In chapter 5 of this book, Outliers, chapter 5 is titled Three Lessons of Joe Flan. Uh, Joe is a Jewish-born um, lawyer, in his, in the, born in the 1930s, and uh, kind of details the trajectory of his career from humble beginnings to later successes. And it's the storytelling that Malcolm does that just captures your attention and your imagination and you're kind of caught up in it. But then he turns the story and he says in his writing there that from this guy's story that Malcolm says he will show you how lessons learned from this guy's life when applied to the legal world of New York City could predict the family background, age, and origin of the city's most powerful attorneys without even knowing a single additional fact about them. I'm like, wow, that's, that's remarkable. But it's not just stories we read about in today's publishing or stories we watch in today's movies. It's even stories we read about in the Bible. Perhaps some of you know the story of a man named Nathan who was a prophet who went and had a conversation with another guy named David who was a king. They knew each other well. Nathan was a trusted counselor to David. And Nathan said, I have a story to tell you. David's like, tell me about it. And he goes on to tell them the story about a man who had many sheep, 
but how he was receiving a guest. Instead of taking one of his sheep, he took a sheep of another man who only had one sheep, and he took that sheep and he killed the sheep to offer it to this guest. David is caught up in the story like, what? Tell me this did not happen. It did happen. And David, in reacting to the story, is caught up in it. He says, man, we need justice. And, he, and Nathan's saying, we do need justice. And he says, let's get the man. And Nathan says, you are the man. For this is exactly what you have done when you took another man's wife as your own. When he was away fighting in battle for you, you slept with his wife, got her pregnant. Then, to cover your sins, you had him put in the front line of battle and had him be killed. God knows, and I'm here to tell you, you are that man. Oh. That story took a turn you wouldn't expect. Well, tonight, friends, we have a story to learn. A story to learn because of the lessons it wants to teach. Tonight's storytelling is not from somebody in today's publishing world. It's not from some movie director. It's not even from a prophet named Nathan. Tonight, our story comes from no one less than Jesus himself. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 20, has a story to teach, and I want you to see it with your own eyes. So if you would, look with me at Matthew chapter 20. And let's listen to the story as Jesus tells it. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Then Jesus, finishing the story, says in verse 18, excuse me, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, friends, 
For some of you, this text is unfamiliar in that you've not been with us in the book of Matthew. Let me just set the scene here for you because we're in the middle of a conversation. In previous weeks, we've been in the book of Matthew chapter 19, in fact, kind of in a providential turn of calendar events, if you will. A friend of ours, Pastor Hosea Bay at Providence Road Church came a number of weeks ago and he preached, unknowing that we were going through Matthew 19, he preached Matthew 19 and he preached on the rich young man. And that's a text that we're in the middle of the conversation of. And so to keep with Matthew 19, where we were the previous weeks, since then, we went back to the previous verses of Matthew 19 and we look at what Jesus is teaching about relationships. Why does Jesus care about your gender? Why does Jesus care about your relationships? Why does Jesus care about your marriage? Why does Jesus care about your divorce? We learn from the text. What does God say? Not what do we say, not what does our parents say, not what do our friends say, not what do the quote-unquote experts say. What does Jesus say, the Son of God say? Picking back up in this conversation, just to set the scene again, this is a conversation that first took place with the rich young man in chapter 19. You can see that there in verse 16, this behan- this, behold, this young man came up to him and they have this conversation. And the man leaves. He goes away sorrowful because he will not respond to what Jesus has asked of him. But then it says there, specifically in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's in a conversation now with his disciples. The 12 disciples who are with him, they're having this conversation. And the question that seems obvious about the difficulty of it, you can sort of hear what they say. Look at, if you will, back in chapter 19, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonishing, who then can be saved? Jesus says, verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter says in verse 27, in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, just by way of contrast, what's happening here is that by way of comparison, the rich young man, he doesn't want to give up everything to follow Jesus. But the disciples are saying, Jesus, we gave up everything to follow you. And Jesus is like, I recognize that. I recognize that what will in this world look like greatness will actually not be great in the world to come. And when the world to come will not look like greatness, it will actually be great here. And so the reality is sort of that first shall be last. And then he tells the story that I just read to you. It's a parable. A story that teaches a profound lesson. But understandably, it's one that for most of you, if not all of you, would be lost. Because honestly, you're not growing up in an agricultural society. You're not just coming off of a long week of planting your crops. You're not used to thinking about day laborers and the like. So let me, if I can, help set the scene here a little bit for you of what Jesus is talking about. In Matthew chapter 20, he's talking about a landowner who went out in the morning, and he went to basically the market, a market of all the shops and all the produce and all the business happening, and he goes out, and a worker's day in that time would be from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so this landowner has got a vineyard. Now, the vineyard, you got to understand, in Israel, grapes is gold. To have a vineyard makes you a true boss. And so he apparently does not have enough laborers, which is not uncommon. A a farmer will have some workers on his property on a permanent basis, but if you're in harvesting season, you need some people to come for a short time who can provide that work and maybe just be day work or it can be seasonal work, but they're not there year round. So he goes to the market and he's looking for some workers and either because of his estimation of what he needs 
and or what's available to him, he only gets so many workers. And so essentially at the beginning of the day, at 6 a.m., he gets some workers. And he has a conversation with them. His conversation is basically a conversation about what is being asked of them and what they're going to be given in exchange. They basically agree on a contract. You will work this long, you will get paid this much. Great, we're in agreement, and so then they go do that work. But while they're doing that work, three hours later, at about 9 a.m., the landowner goes back to the market needing some more workers, and he finds some more workers standing by. Now, to put this in modern-day kind of translation, what this would look like, this would be like, hey, I am remodeling my house, and I've got some, some contractors that are going to come and help me. I've hired them, and you know, I've got drywallers, and I've got some mason guys and stuff, but, but I need some laborers. I need some work done. And it's not that I need an ongoing base. I need some work done. And so what some people do is they'll go to like a labor company. Other people will go to like your local home improvement store, a Home Depot, a Lowe's. And they find the people over to the side who are looking for work for one reason or another, and they'll get into a conversation with them about, hey, I, I need some help back at my house. If I pay you this much, will you come help me back in my house? And they're like, we're in. We got nothing to do. That's why we're here. We're here to work. Let's go. So this guy basically keeps going back to the first century Home Depot parking lot. He keeps going back. He starts at 6 a.m. He gets some workers. He comes back at 9 a.m. I need you two to come with me. He gets some more workers. But notice in the conversation he has at 9 a.m., this sort of second shift of the day, he says, I will pay what is right to you. In other words, I'm going to pay you a responsible deal. The first one, they worked out a detail. The first one was like, the second one was like, we're going to agree to this. Now it's not just 9 a.m. He comes back at noon. Then he comes back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The day is almost over, but still he needs more work. And surprisingly, he shows back up at the market at 5 p.m. We're only an hour to go before the workday is done. He noticed the conversation that the landowner has in the market. Basically, he says, what are you guys still doing here? And look at what they say in the text. Verse 7, they said to him, no one has hired us. He said to them, you go out into the vineyard too. So he hires them, gives them a job. They have one hour of work. At this point in the story, the people who are listening to Jesus are like, move it along, story boy. We get it. A guy needs some work, he gets some help. What, I don't understand the point here. Wait for it. Jesus now talked about what happens at the end of the day. At the end of the day, the guy who owns the land gets the manager and says, hey, I want you to go ahead and pay all the workers now. But I want you to do me a favor. I want you to start with the people who started at the very last. And I want you to give them a denarius. So he goes to the people who show up at 5 p.m., who've only been there for one hour, and they get to everyone's surprise, including their own, a full day's labor. Because a denarius amount would basically be a day's worth of pay. They work one hour, but they get paid for one day. Now all the other workers are like, oh, this is looking really good for us. Because if this God is that generous, if, excuse me, if this guy is that generous with these people for one hour, you can just kind of like, you can see the math, right? Like, I mean, if, if an hour is worth a day, and I've been here for, I mean, you could just say, well, that guy's going to get, and I'm going to, man, I'm, we're going to, it's going to, we're eating steak tonight. Brazilian steakhouse, let's go. So what happens is the amount of money is being passed out. It's surprisingly is consistent. 
person works one hour, gets a day's worth. person works three hours, a day's worth. person works six hours, a day's worth. And by the time Jesus says you get to the people who've been working a whole day, they're in disbelief looking at what's been put in their hand. But they're not keeping their disbelief to themselves. Look how they respond. It says in verse 11, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us. So here's what's happening. That statement is telling. These people believe that their value was greater because of how much longer they have been working for the master. And they resented the fact that the master of the house made these other people equal to them. They wanted a standing represented in their pay, represented in their reward, that would be greater. And instead, what you see is that the master says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you agree with me for this denarius, this day's work? Well, then take what belongs to you. Go, I choose to give you this last work. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And then here's the question. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now let's slow the tape down and let's learn some lessons from this text. Lesson number one. God is sovereignly gracious to whomever he wants for whatever reason he wants. God is sovereignly gracious to whomever he wants for whatever reason he wants. See, the context that's talking about here is this sense of righteousness and who should be given what. In fact, back to the conversation with the context of the rich young ruler and this cold sort of provocative reality of Jesus' ministry to Jews and Gentiles, there is a great debate on Jesus hanging out with Gentiles and them extending this invitation, this conversation about the kingdom. In fact, just for the sake of reference, look with me, if you would, back in chapter 19, how commonly Jesus is talking about the kingdom. So if you look at, for example, at verse 19, uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 12, the very end, he's talking about these eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Again, you can see in verse 14, talking about little children come to me, do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Again, verse 23, Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, verse 24, um, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then again, how does the story start in chapter 20? For the kingdom of heaven is like. This is a conversation that Jesus is having, a story that Jesus is telling to teach about the gift of salvation. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And what we're seeing here, Jesus' teaching is that God is sovereignly gracious to whomever he wants for whatever reason he wants. This speaks to his divine prerogative that he has to determine how he will demonstrate his divine grace. God is God and there is no one like him. Keeping your finger in Matthew 20, do me a favor and turn to the right in your Bibles to the book of Romans. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Go to Romans chapter 9. Paul, one of the followers of Jesus, was not originally a follower of Jesus. He first was killing Christians, having them killed, later becomes a follower of Jesus himself. Romans chapter 9, look with me, jumping down to verse 6. Paul writes, Romans 9, verse 6, talking about God's sovereign grace. He says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, though I, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are continued as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is going back to Old Testament history. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, what Jesus is showing us in Matthew 20 is that God, as the Lord of the vineyard, as the ruler of over all of creation, as the Lord of all of humanity, God is gracious to whomever he wants to be gracious to. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching back here in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So he is teaching a lesson through the parable, through the story of his sovereign grace. The second lesson Jesus wants us to learn is that grace is uncomfortable when you watch others receive what you think only you deserve. Grace is uncomfortable when you watch others receive what you think only you deserve. This is a time and age when the common conversation in different sort of talking points in society is a conversation about justice. The question is, what is justice and how is it accomplished? What does it look like? When do we know we've accomplished it? But there is just great cry for justice. I mean, honestly, I, I want justice. If somebody breaks into my house and steals my property, somebody breaks into my house and injures one of my family members, I can assure you I want justice. I value justice. If my car is stolen, I would like it to be returned. I would like to have it be refunded to me or insured. I would like justice. Justice is a value that we admittedly appreciate. However, we also understandably appreciate grace. When that police officer has pulled me over, you know, just hypothetically speaking, just, you know, my doppelganger named Eric Bancroft, if he was to be pulled over by a police officer 
for perhaps traveling too far or me too fast down the road, too much of a high rate of speed. I'm hoping to try to find some talking point that he and I can connect on that will lead to grace. I don't want justice. I definitely do not want justice. I do not want a $175 fine, and I'm just, I'm just saying hypothetically, if someone's to get a ticket, I'm guessing these kind of numbers. What do I know? I do not want to have to do traffic school, let points go on my thing. I don't want any part of that. I, I'm looking for the officer to find something in me to say, you know what, sir, just slow down next time. My mother was a police officer. My stepfather was a police officer. You can bet I'm talking about that. My wife's uncle is a police officer. We might talk about that. I want to say something positive in order that I might receive grace. But I confess, I've been on road trips and I have seen police in their little speed traps. And I've seen cars race by and wondering if it's gonna like be fast enough for the police to turn on their lights and whip a U and go after them. And it does. At times I'm like, ooh, busted. Busted, sucker. I want justice for that guy but I want grace for me. Friends, I'm imagining there might be one or two more of me in this room here today who believes in justice, values it, champions it, wants it. But when it comes to my own application of receiving it, I would prefer to trade it for grace. But that speaks to how twisted our view can be we need to flip the perspective. We need to look deeply at what God has done for us. Grace is uncomfortable when you watch others receive what you think only you deserve. Thirdly, God often exposes our motives when results don't end up like we expected. God often exposes our motives when results don't end up like we expected. You notice back in the story, the problem was not the rate of pay. They actually agreed on the rate of pay. It says that actually in verse two. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. What ends up happening is, is throughout the day, there is a sort of increasing assessment. Okay, see you. Thanks for joining us. We could use some help here. Oh, see you. Yeah, he will give you some instructions of what we're doing because I don't have time to stop. Oh, see you. Well, she will teach you because I don't have any time to stop. The point is, let's just be clear. I'm kind of the Lord of this land for the day. And I'm making an assessment of how other people are. What ends up happening is, is it begins over time to show the motive of why we do what we do often becomes a point of self-exaltation, self-promotion, or a particular assurance of something we're guaranteed to get. God, if I transact with you with volunteering, God, if I transact with you with prayer, God, if I transact with you with holiness, God, if I transact with you with obedience, if I, if I do the right thing, you will in exchange provide me the following. 
And I'm assuming if you provide the like for someone else who's not done nearly half as much of what I've done, then you will somehow supersize my life. You'll say, man, let's not miss out on Eric over there. He deserves an extra portion of blessing. What happens is we assume that God is working with the same report card that we are and the same standards. Our motives are exposed when we compare our view of what we have done to what others have done to what we think we deserve versus what others deserve. Friends, instead we have to flip the script entirely. We have to have a perspective that says, we are a people who try to continually soak our hearts every day in the pool of gratitude. We want to bathe in thankfulness. It's noticeable in Philippians chapter four, where he's talking about things that would make us anxious. To bring those requests to God, do not be anxious. But it says, in thankfulness, in everything, bring, make a request known to God. What ends up happening is that grace gets twisted in how we think of it as being an appreciation for ourselves, but not for others. And we miss out on what God is doing in our life. These people were not obligated, rather the, the, the landlord was not obligated to hire them. There's no obligated employment. There's no obligated blessing. There's no obligated provision, yet this landlord provided that. But they couldn't see that. Here's two assignments I want to give you. One won't take you very long. One will take you from now until next Sunday. Number one, make a list of everything God owes you. Make a list of everything God owes you. It should not take you that long. Number two, make a list of everything you owe God. Try the drill this week sometime. Try it in these coming days. Talk about it tonight over dinner. Rehearse it. Prime the pump of your heart to position you for perhaps bitterness or resentment to gratitude and thankfulness. Lesson number four. God is often gracious even when teaching us about grace. What's so remarkable about Jesus and how he so calmly teaches his disciples, and we've seen this so often, Jesus keeps shocking everybody with how much grace he keeps demonstrating and teaching about. But what ends up happening is, is that he shows grace to people we don't think deserve it, and he's correcting people who otherwise think they only they deserve it. And you'll notice back in the text how the landlord talks to this individual. Look at verse 13. So after they have responded the way that they have, verse 11, they've grumbled, making the request known. They're not just dropping it in the, in the complaint box at the office. Oh no, this thing is going viral. It goes from they, they grumbled, the plurality of them, they grumbled, saying, these last words only one hour and you have made them equal to us, us in the plural, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them. So he takes one of them aside in the story and he says, friend. I am doing you no wrong. I love how gracious this example is itself when actually teaching about grace. The landowner does not say, you should be thankful I gave you a job. Instead, he responds with friend and he answers the person's question. He's not obligated. If you don't like it, I'll keep my denarius. See how thankful you are then. He actually indulges, entertains, answers 
the murmuring moment. How often have we gone to God in prayer frustrated, disappointed, upset, something has not happened? We know what this is like in our hearts. There are countless ways that we can complain against God and think that He owes us. We've been serving in the church for years and someone who is newer is given a chance to lead a ministry that we think we deserve to be able to lead. We've been living for the Lord and choosing to obey the law, make wise decisions, love our enemies. And the guy who's in jail for murdering his family says he gives his life to Christ, having repented of his sins and put his trust in Christ. We're like, he better not get the same place in heaven I'm getting. Just want to be clear. If he gets in the door, we hope he get like an outhouse. I hope he's not going to be like with me. That, we should be clear on this, God. We've been faithfully sharing the gospel with someone else week after week, month after month, year after year, and someone else shares a gospel with them in a passing conversation, and they get saved. And to our surprise, we're actually upset. They didn't get saved when we evangelized them. As if God owes us the credit on our ledger. But perhaps we've been faithful as a single, not compromising on who we should or should not date. And God gives a girlfriend or a boyfriend to someone else and not us. We've been waiting year after year after year. And why do they get the boyfriend? Why does he get the girlfriend? Or we've been faithful as parents. Faithful, not perfect, by no means perfect, but faithful as parents, reading the Bible, talking about life, interacting with issues, correcting your children, and believing, okay, I will parent them faithfully, and then they will rise up and say, mom and dad are the best. And then they don't want anything to do with you. They denounce their relationship with you. Meanwhile, the jacked up parents seemingly have great times with their kids and they enjoy their vacations. In those moments, you and I are tempted to say, God, it's not fair. Why are you gracious to them? They don't deserve what I deserve. And in those moments, we have misunderstood entirely the very understanding of grace. Unearned, unmerited favor that no one deserves, but God in His wisdom, often mysterious, but abundantly and overwhelmingly gives to those to whom He chooses. Friend, this is an encouragement to us. Here's why. Because some of you don't see yourself as the people complaining about others' grace, but you're wondering, could God show you grace? Some of you might feel like, I have only been showing up my walk with God for a short time. I don't even know my way around the Bible. You talk about books of the Bible like I've been reading it for years. I don't even know where half the things are you're talking about. And honestly, I still struggle with some addictions. And honestly, I, I still have struggles with forgiveness. And honestly, there's things that I just wish I wasn't doing that I still am doing. I feel like, honestly, I've not earned any of God's grace to me. And to that point, I would say, friend, you are exactly right. That's why it's called grace. What God does that's so radical is He loved those who do not deserve to be loved. That's you and that's me. 
So the question everybody in this room has to address is, how will you have peace with God? If it's through what you have done, you will never have peace. But it's through what Jesus has done in His perfect record, having worked that full day, having lived that perfect life, having accomplished all that, and then for Him to give you credit for that because of your faith in Him and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, there is grace to the smallest and the biggest of sinners, to those who have been raised in the best of homes and those who have been coming off the streets and would say to me, Eric, you have no clue about my background. You have no clue what I've been through. And I would say to you, you might be right, but he does. And he offers grace to you. Grace through his son. And I want you to hear that and believe that and respond to that by putting your faith in Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.